Hello, friends. It's Kara Kendall here with everybody's favorite Gerard Robinson, inviting you to settle into those earbuds, do whatever it is you do while you're listening to your favorite education podcast. Personally, I'm usually doing the dishes. And uh, get ready to be schooled because you're listening to the Learning Curve Citizen Stewart edition. We've got Gerard here. Gerard, what have you been up to this week? I had an opportunity to travel to Lafayette College in Pennsylvania to talk about the importance of education to criminal justice reform. And I was on stage with two people, uh, one uh, executive director of PD Green program uh, in Princeton, New Jersey, and another one runs the Innovation Center at Lafayette College. And so it was a great, really great conversation about what we need to do to change the lives of young people and adults. And as you would probably figure, so much of this comes into the bellywick of what we talk about, why schools matter and what can we do to make sure every child has access to an appropriate education. So I'm back home now, but enjoy my time in uh, that part of the world. That's fantastic. And you said you were there with your daughter? No, it was just me. I was there solo. Yeah. Okay. Wow. But fantastic. You know, like we should all, what a, what a fascinating career you have had, my friend. So, okay. We've got, we've got two great stories of the week. And I think the first one goes to you to describe because there's a, there's a nice connection there. Katherine Johnson, uh, who many people now know because of Hidden Figures, she actually uh, died uh, this week at the age of 101. She was a NASA mathematician. She was also a scientist. And as someone who works in the world of supporting historically black colleges and universities, uh, she attended West Virginia State University, which is a historically black institution located uh, right outside of Charleston, West Virginia. She uh, grew up in a very humble uh, time of American history for her own life, but she also grew up in the throes of segregation. Uh, Like many people in her generation, she was unable to have access to some of the white schools because of the color of her skin, or even when there were opportunities open to her for her job, her gender worked against her. So she had the double whammy of being black and a female. Uh, She was tenacious and smart. Uh, She came from a community who said, we're going to work with you and make sure we open up doors. Uh, She did a lot of work. And as many of you know, she later worked uh, for NASA and uh, helped uh, put us into space. Um, After Hidden Figures, she became more more well-known to people in both the public and private sector. Uh, She actually had an opportunity to receive an award from President Obama. And she also had a statue Uh, that's now erected on the campus of West Virginia State. I'm proud to say that uh, me, my wife, and my two younger daughters had an opportunity to donate money to uh, support the creation of that uh, plaque, and I'm glad to uh, be in a position to help. She is really uh, an American uh, icon. She's someone that uh, all women independent of race or color should take a look at. And it's also a reminder to us as men that while she's 101 years old and experienced levels of discrimination because of her gender, I don't want us to think that in 2020 there's still um, no barriers that we as men put up either institutionally, organizational, or otherwise. But whenever I get you know discouraged or need uh, a pickup, I often go back and read stories about people like her, about Catherine, about her work, because it lets me know that while I have a lot of challenges ahead, uh, she and many others helped create a platform for all of us to stand on and to have this conversation today. 
Well, all of the women listening to this podcast, thank you for those comments about thinking about the barriers that are still still erected. But this is, you know, I, I obviously don't have the same sort of um, personal connection to this that you do. I mean, you know, name on a plaque and all that. But like most people, um, I first learned about Katherine Johnson through the movie and watched that movie with my mother and my now 10-year-old daughter. So she was a little bit younger uh, then. But one of the things I remember is that we, my husband and I decided that this could be the first movie that, that our daughter could watch that wasn't like an animated film, right? That was an actual like movie. Mm, about so it was really important to us to, and to do it with, with the three um, – uh, ma- you know, the, with the matriarch of the family, my mother. Um, but you know, this, and it was so, I don't know how much of it my daughter at the time could grasp, but the, the brilliance of this woman and her passion for her work in the face of such hostility and such adversity. And the fact that, you know, she and the other women that the story's about were so unacknowledged and truly hidden as the movie t- for so long, you know, not just from public, but in their own profession in so many ways and made me think about the people who, who are, who remain hidden today that, that are doing this heroic work. The other thing that it really brought to mind for me as this article was describing, you know, um, her, her childhood a little bit and her, and a little bit about her education is that I think that in, in conversations about like what it was like then, I mean, you said yourself, you know, she didn't have access to some of these very, um, uh, fancy schools that white children at the time, if, especially if they were well would have been able to attend. But I think that one of the things this article highlighted for me is that she had phenomenal teachers in her life in the segregated schools that she attended. She had mentors and professors that many of whom, you know, so many wonderful African-American teachers and leaders um, under uh, integration and under busing lost their jobs and were no longer available to to children like her. We're no longer teaching in school systems because we did it all in the name of integrating kids. And that didn't mean that these very talented adults, these mentors, these teachers and leaders got to keep their jobs. That was something too that really stuck out for me when I was reading this piece about, you know, just thinking about the influence of all these other great people in her life who elevated her, her parents and others. So it was really, really moving. Um, moving on to our second story of the week, Gerard, not, not quite as moving, <laughs> not, not quite as happy, um, a little bit to talk about. So, okay, Ohio, we're going to, we're going to go to Ohio and this one is, um, out of, I have to remember the name of the article, but we're talking about Ohio's new, um, standards and, and what it's going to take for kids to get a diploma on the state graduation test. Okay. So now I want to preface this by saying, I think Ohio has a lot to brag about. They've been at the forefront of a lot of change and a lot of good stuff, but there's a few political battles going on right now for those of us that are watching, like sort of struggling for the soul of Ohio schools. And there's a legacy of an accountability system that, um, that needs little tweaking, shall we say. But so this story, it was basically about is that the superintendent is, um, he He's now setting the bar. Some of us call it cut scores, right? Kids take tests and we have to decide what it takes to pass the test. And in this case, what score do you have to get to be able to eligible to earn a diploma? And the superintendent has, you know, um, has set the bar on the Ohio State test pretty low. 
meaning that kids basically don't have to be proficient to pass in reading and math. They just have to score right above the basic level. And the argument here is that um, the requirements that he has to follow say that students just have to show competency in math and English to get a diploma. So there's a whole question about what's competency and what skills do kids need to succeed in the economy once they've graduated. So we could we could go on and, and criticize this poor guy and criticize a lot of people on the ground. I don't think that that, for me, is what this is really all about, because I think there are a lot of very well-intentioned people on the ground who really want to do what's best for kids. But I think it highlights a bigger issue. And that is, one, it's what are we supposed to use tests for, right? So we can all – we all – probably all of us who are listening to this podcast, definitely those of us who are on the podcast, remember No Child Left Behind, right? And we can say that, you know, it wasn't as great an implementation as many of us hoped it would be. But but tests under that law were supposed to shine a light on school failure, right? They were supposed to shine a light on when schools weren't doing their jobs, and then we could do something to fix that was the idea. Now, tests have also traditionally served this role of sort of signaling if a graduate has enough skill or knowledge that in says to an employer, like, hey, I earned this diploma, I'm going to be able to do something. But the fact of the matter is, all state tests across this country, even here, yes, where I sit in Massachusetts, where we like to think our state test is very hard, and it's harder compared to most, but they all have pretty low standards. They all don't expect very much of kids. And then we have the ability to set the bar even lower by determining what proficiency is. So this isn't a reason to get rid of state tests, but it's probably a reason to make them more rigorous. And I think, Gerard, that it is definitely a reason to use them for the right purpose and then to find other complementary ways to help students signal to employers what their competencies are. You know, so what are we talking about, whether it's, you know, micro-credentialing the new lingo or what are those certifications, skills, things that students should have to be able to do beyond taking a standardized test that's going to say you have these competencies and this is what can help you earn a diploma and this is what's going to help you go out into the labor market or to higher education and be successful. And that's the kind of article that I really want to read next. Gerard, what do you think? I support tests for the same reasons you mentioned. It is an opportunity for adults to identify developmental needs as well as strengths. It's also a cue to where we need to invest human resources, financial resources during, before, and possibly after school uh, to be supportive. Now, I say that as someone who's never been a great standardized test taker. I say it as someone who is pretty clear that my test scores uh, really would not have predicted that I would be in the position that I'm in today. But I'm I also right there with you, my friend. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure there's probably other people who are listening to us who could say the same thing. Uh, I also understand, I've heard this a lot from both students, parents, uh, and teachers, that we test too much. And what I have to say is, well, first of all, the majority of the states operate on a 180-day calendar. Uh, in many instances, maybe the testing days are from 10 possibly as high uh, as 20. So it's not the bulk. We can argue if it's too much or too many. But what you're talking about is a state exam. And people often overlook the fact that local school superintendents and school boards can elect themselves to offer tests on top of the state exam because either A, they think the state exam will only tell us so much about students. B, the state exam, for example, may not be linked to um, uh, a national overview, so they want to bring in something else. So I often feel the pain of state superintendents, state commissioners, state secretaries. They're often the ones who say, you're not being 
you know, judicious enough in making sure that students uh, are, know what they should know and working with lawmakers to make sure our standards are, are credible. But I often talk to lawmakers and college admission officers. And no matter what I say my degree or my work's going to do, they tell me that some students are coming in prepared for college and yet too many need remediation. And employers will tell me we get some great people directly from high school. And others will say I'm spending millions of dollars as a group uh, reeducating your supposedly educated students. So uh, what Ohio is going through is what a number of people will go through. Uh, I will remain agnostic over whether or not uh, the leader in that state uh, isn't interested in proficiency or not. I know some of that stuff has more to do with algorithms and internal politics than it does with academic achievement. But I'm just glad that we're having this debate because it keeps all of us honest that we've got to do a better job of assessing what we teach students and to make sure they're aligned not only with our standards, but preparing students to enter the uh, knowledge economy with some fluidity, some interest, and some tenacity. Yeah, and, and this is this is so clearly the result of, I mean, politics. And this stuff is getting more and more politicized everywhere, right? Ohio is absolutely not alone. I have a question for you, for somebody with your view, right, your view of things, having sat where you've sat, George. And that is, you mentioned that superintendents, meaning district superintendents and others, uh, teachers, schools, principals, always reserve the right, you know, to go beyond the state test. They can test different things. I think that what we've seen so far is mainly, you know, tests to make sure that you're going to pass the state test, right? And that's where parents and kids and others feel this drill and kill. Why are you constantly making me? I don't know. I think in most places they're still filling in Scantron sheets with bubbles. Um, you know, I know in a lot of places here in Massachusetts, it's, uh, you know, p- kids are struggling to find laptops to take the test on as we try and transition. But have you seen places where districts or even, even maybe it's a one-off school are really using other intelligent forms of a test of assessment that help to assess competency that go beyond just like, hey, are you going to get to proficient on this state test? Because if you don't, we're going to be coerced into something that we don't like. Have you seen good examples? As early as 2010, 2011, I remember having a conversation with the then superintendent of the Fairfax County public school system, uh, one of the largest in the country, surely one of the largest ones in the Commonwealth. Um, And he mentioned in passing once that I'm glad to have uh, the state exam. He said, but my families are requiring that I do a broader assessment than just that because many of our students are going to colleges, not only in Virginia, but outside of the Commonwealth, but who are also, you know, going to go school overseas or may work overseas. And so he said, we as a a leadership team have decided to do so. I won't name particular tests uh, just because I'm sure I'll leave out one for another. I'd say the same thing in uh, in Florida. Uh, We can take Miami-Dade, for example, uh, a very large school system, uh, economically, racially different than per se a Fairfax County, not by much, but you know, very different in terms of poverty levels. Um, but the superintendent and the school board there also decided that, hey, this is great, but we're going to move forward. Those are two places that I would mention because they're large, they're in two different states, and uh, they're dealing with um, populations uh, in need, but also populations in some case uh, who are affluent and even affluent parents want more. 
Oh, yes, absolutely. All parents, I think, want more in most cases. Um, fan, thank you for that answer, my friend. And it's making me think I think we need to have a real assessment guru on the podcast mm-hmm. to help walk us through just how things have changed in the past 20 years and what the future looks like. Because when I read articles like these, I think like, yep, yeah, jump through this hoop. But you know what? This is not where we need to be. and We need to get moving to think about how it is we really assess competency. But, okay, moving on. From testing to just the whole wide world of education policy, we've got coming up, um, uh, his name is Chris Stewart, ladies and gentlemen, but you all know him as Citizen Stewart, and we're going to talk to him right after this. And we're back, friends. We are back with Chris Stewart. Some think of him as the king of Twitter, but he is also the chief executive officer at Brightbeam, named CEO in April 2019 after formerly serving as CEO of the Wayfinder Foundation. But Chris has been a lifelong activist, 20-year supporter of nonprofit and education-related causes. He's also served as the director of outreach and external affairs at the Education Post, executive director of the African-American Leadership Forum, and an elected member of the Minneapolis Public School. Board of Education, where he was radicalized by witnessing the many systemic inequities that hold our children back. That Those were not my words, but Chris, maybe they were yours. Welcome to The Learning Curve. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be with you guys. Yeah, well, we're really happy to have you today. So we're going we're gonna to dive right in here, Chris. So many of our listeners know you, of course, as Citizen Stewart, always tame, never provocative, <laughs> never, never, never asking us to, how the children are when we wake up every morning, which I personally appreciate very much. Um, tell us about how you got involved in the work and what's, you know, um, what animates your educational outlook? Where does it come from? You know, I think a lot of it stems from the the point that I was a parent that had a problem a long time ago and the schools were a mystery to me and how they work was a mystery and I had to figure some things out. And to me, that's the perfect entree to becoming an activist in education is having a real child with a real problem and not seeing many answers, like fit, facing a lot of dead ends. It morphed over time. When I became a school board member, I was able to see how schools operate from a business perspective, from 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 like behind the curtain. And what I saw behind the curtain was shocking to me. It was like an education in itself being on a school board and seeing how the business works behind the scenes. That really, I think, cemented for me that I will spend the rest of my life trying to tell the public about how much this thing is rigged for kids, rigged against so, kids, I should say. I, I got to ask as a school board member myself, what's what was the most shocking part of looking behind the curtain for you? You know, I would have to say it's like how many times decisions being made weren't actually being made in the best interest of academic performance or for kids or for achievement or for the outcomes of their their lives, but for business pragmatism and for um, for things that didn't matter a lot, of time, a lot of times just politics. You know, we had 16 bargaining units. We had elected officials and other offices that would call us and threaten us if we weren't going to make decision A or B in their favor for their constituents. And just how many times really well-heeled people with great phone trees could come into a school board meeting and make us make really bad decisions that weren't in the public interest. It's a little bit frightening. Okay, so I've... 
you mentioned that, you know, this started off for you as a parent. And a lot of the folks that are listening to us right now are parents. And a lot of them are also, you know, policy wonks, especially um, here in the learning curve where we get a little bit choicey time to time. You, my friend, get a little bit choicey time to time, right? <laughs> and, um, and, and I'm wondering, so as we think about... School, the school choice word specifically, but feel free to comment on, you know, eduwonkery at large. When we think about policymakers, how policy gets made, and then we think about parents and what parents need, to what extent do you think parents have a good seat at any table when it comes to decision making? You said you were a parent on a school board, mm-hmm. but even, even in the world of school choice, private school choice, public school choice, to what extent do they have a seat at the table? And, um, and, and do you have a different view for what that seat at the table should look like in the future? Well, I think it's a great question because I'm all often saying, you know, my hit phrase, which is that, you know, parents don't need to be empowered. Parents need to be in power. And those are two very different concepts. Um, when we talk about empowering parents, it's like we're giving them something they don't have or, you know, fostering something in them that they don't see. When in actuality, we haven't finished our work until parents are leading from the front and they're actually making the decisions that are best for their kids. We are so far away from that. And the way that I I can tell you that it is a reality in my life is that I spend a lot of times having these conversations with people that are very educated in in policy wonkery. They have ninja black belts in in wonkery. And then I um, I live in a rural area and then I go to our Christmas parties and our our get togethers with friends and, you know, having drinks with with uh, with what I consider to be civilians. And the distance between what they know is going on and with the parents who I see when I am in cities dropping into community events and meetings, what they see going on versus what's actually happening in policy world, the distance couldn't be wider. And I don't know that there's a brilliant silver bullet on closing that gap, except for the people that are really working really hard to organize um, reform world and and all the things that we do in our conversations could be doing a much better job to making sure that there's a seat at the table for rank and file civilian parents. Amen to that. Chris, this is Gerard. Glad to have you on. Glad to be here, man. Always happy to talk to you, Gerard. Vice versa. (laughs) So I've got a question for you. Most people through your work know of you as Chris, the guy who's in empowering parents or are going to get them in power. I know a little bit about your growing up, your world, and also, you know, what made you say, aha, I want to make this in education. So for people who don't know who was little Chris, tell us a little bit about little Chris growing up. Um, you know, I, I lived in New Orleans and in California. I was able to see um, well, I was educated in many places, but mostly miseducated. I did terrible in school. I was not a great student. I didn't get a great education. And um, and things really went uh, bad for me in about ninth or 10th grade. Um, and I was always behind. Um, I went to different kinds of schools and was able to see what, what people had in different schools. Um, none of that really mattered to me. It didn't really make sense to me. I didn't see it as a problem until I became a dad at 22. I mean, became a dad at 22, looking at another human being and realizing that, like, I'm, <laughs> I'm on the hook for this. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to do something here, but I'm 22 years old with a terrible, uh, failed education, working in service industry jobs, 
um, and seeing what other people are giving their kids and knowing I, w- I will never be able to do that. That was like uh, the, the break in my psyche, my soul. That was the change in me. You know, the first time loving something else more than myself and and having the heartbreak of knowing I wasn't going to be able to do all that I could actually formed me. That changed what mattered in life to me in, in so many ways. I'm many years away from that now, and it still sticks with me. Like the moment that I realized that I was on the hook for something big and education became the only thing that I really thought is going to go right for my kid. No matter what happens, he's not going to have the the experience I had in these schools. He's not going to like fall behind. He's not going to have the problems I had. And he's sure as hell not going to be working service industry jobs in his twenties and be well into his thirties before he has a credit card, right? Like that's not going to be my kid's lifestyle. And, um, and we made it happen. I tell the story often. I tell people like, you know, these aren't policy stories. Like, like when I dropped my kid off to college, I never really knew for sure that day was going to come. And it, it tore me up. And when I picked him up four years later, when he had graduated, it was the most, it was the most I had ever exhaled in my life. Right. It was like the, and, and I want that experience for many families and many people who are in my position who felt less smart than everybody else felt like they weren't empowered, felt like they, you know, all these smart people in the world control everything and you, and they just can't be beat. I want them to have that sense uh, that we beat the system like I did with my oldest um, when, when he graduated from college. Well, thanks for sharing that personal story because many people don't know it. And I know you shared it with me some time ago. So we're now in a position where you've got, you know, one child who finished college, you've got more than one uh, student or I should say child in, in school. Now, at some point as a school board member, as a reformer, we're not having a conversation about elite level politics. Mm-hmm. And we know that a lot of people, whether it's Louisiana, California, D.C., Chicago, no matter what city or state you live in, a lot of people benefit from choice. Either they mm-hmm. move to a great neighborhood and they ex- express choice that way, or they'll put their kids in charter schools or private schools. And yet we find a lot of people wanting choice for their children and options, but not for other people, other people's children. So why do you think, you know, the parental option issue remains a third rail issue in K-12 policy today? Um, I really, you know, I framed the question a little bit differently. I think it's the right focus, but I think we're having a very class-based fight. I mean, many of the middle class spend all their time getting their kids into safe harbor, and then their politics are, are politics of convenience after that. So really, the middle class is doing a lot to make sure that the underclass stays in schools that they would never put their kids in. And I think it's, you know, you could have a big thesis on this, a big you know dissertation on it, but the simplest I could put it is that everybody who does have the power to get out does so. And then the people who are left behind become something akin to like chattel, like they, they, you redline them into the thing. And there's many people making their living off of them staying put exactly where they are in circumstances that many of those people, those college educated middle class people who are in the education industry, who are feeding off of the $800 billion that goes into that, um, they want captives. They don't want students. They actually don't, they want your body there. They don't really care that nothing is going into your mind as long as your body stays because of the per pupil income. It's a business. It really is a business. It's an $800 billion business. And, and that's just the main part of, of, of the business. There's other people living off of those kids too. So there is, it, there is a profit motive 
um, to keeping kids roughly where they are. And then those who can get out really do. And it's really weird that once they do get out, their politics change, right? Like, you know, um, I, I can, you and I can go back and forth and I can name you a long list of anti-choice people that come into my Twitter feed who graduated from private high schools. Yeah, of course. And the whole time they're telling you that they know what's best for their kids (laughs) or for your kids. (laughs) Oftentimes they are teachers working in schools where no one can read, but, um, but somehow they know it's good for my kids. They know it's good for us. Well, and they're doing the savior work, right? Because they're teaching kids how to read in schools. Um, You know, I want to push on this just for just a minute here, Chris, because I think the other part of um, the choice debate, I know that's not the right way to call it. I'll let you figure out what what we call it. But when we we talk about choice, and one of the things that I think so many people um, who care about it look to you for is sending the message and framing the message. And one of the ways in which people who do not like choice, people who would prefer to keep kids, you know, exactly where they want them, they win the messaging war, I would say, um, you know, the vast majority of the time. And mm-hmm. I really like, got to listen to you talk a little bit at the International School Choice and Reform Conference about what, what the media leaves out, that it's usually sins of omission that are the bias and in media coverage, et cetera. But what, how much do we have to own, meaning those who support all forms of school choice, how much do we have to own in terms of our own inability to get the message across or to to make the message go far and wide, that that message that we're trying to send? Uh, I think we you have to own a lot of it. Um, I think, you know, we're in a war. We're in a fight. We're in like a real honest-to-goodness, you know, Saul Alinsky, Chicago-style fight. And our opponents are very good at uh, defining an enemy that works for people, like an, en- an enemy that, that will be an image that people can grasp onto and be against. And uh, I think too many people on our side believe that because truth is on our side and truth really is on our side, that that's all we really have to go with is just, you know, the, the data, the studies, the facts, those things, which do matter. But when it comes to organizing people for or against something in public persuasion, I just think our level of fight is different than our opponent's level of fight um, and, and how much time they are spending on messaging and communications and defining the debate, defining what they are, and then getting journalists to parrot their um, their analysis of the situation, which is really just, I think, the ultimate kind of trick that that there is. And we take a lot of hits. We have a lot of people that on our side, actually, that aren't even comfortable fighting about it. And, uh, and God bless all the gentlemen and gentlewomen on our side. I love them. I think it's great. It's not winning anything as we're like just getting hammered and killed in the message war. When I hear you say that, I think of a comment that uh, General Colin Powell one time made to President Obama when he was in office, when he said, at some point, you're trying to intellectualize with people who don't like you. At some mm-hmm. point, you just got to hit people directly between the eyes. And he said that metaphorically, so I'm not saying the general was asking for fisticuffs. <laughs> but uh, it's two guys who grew up knowing how to sing and swing. Yeah. Uh, and both, both. Let's talk about party politics. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Party and those who are currently running uh, for office uh, are providing some very conflicting messages about charter schools. And we know mm-hmm. the charter mm-hmm. school movement, in fact, got its start in your state of Minnesota. And then it was That's California right. And, and uh, 
Massachusetts, where the Pioneer Institute is, where you had um, uh, Speaker Birmingham play a big role. Well, today there's a different message. And on the opposite side of the fence, you've got the Republican Party, who's often given lip service to K-12 policy, more on choice, not on traditional. You know, you see this in many ways that some of us don't. What's the political path forward for K-12 education reform? I think that is like such a tough question because we are in such a weird time right now. I, I think for a long time, the idea was that Republicans would always be a firewall on choice. And they have gotten to different degrees of, of flakiness around the issue um, that it's become alarming and scary on that side. And I think, you know, on the Democratic side, we always had a centrist block that could could try to hold their own in service of at least charter schools. And what you have seen now is a con- complete conversion into the American Federation of Teachers Party rather than a Democratic Party. Um, it started with with Hillary's run in 16 and and now it's just complete. The, you know, they have transformed them. They, they, they own them in a way that they have never owned them before. Um, so I think we're in such uncertain times. It'd be hard for me to give prophecy on like, where do we go from here? Um, being somebody who doesn't really uh, is not beholden to either of these parties mm-hmm. um, as a third party observer, I, I look at it and I just think to myself, um, I hope this fractures both of the parties in a way that they have some, they have to like reconcile with themselves and their values because right now they're engaged in a lot of relativist policies and fights that that don't make sense to me. But on this issue, we have to keep getting the main thing, putting the main thing, the main thing, which is we have to make sure that parents lead from the front. We have to make sure that when people are fighting us with parents, they are defining the issue as being about billionaires and being about very wealthy, unsympathetic white people. And that is a very good frame and narrative um, for them because it it distracts, it projects, it, it creates misdirection. And then we don't have to deal with the fact that kids are walking in classrooms every day where no one can read, who year over year are falling further and further behind and then graduating incapable of doing anything in the American economy. And we haven't figured out a way for the people who are suffering the graduating from high school incapable of doing anything in the mainstream economy. We haven't figured out a way for them to be the people who actually lead the fight for their own liberation. And I think that's where the path forward is. I don't know that party politics are really going to save us anytime soon. Uh, And that just could be because I'm a cynic. No, I think you're actually onto something. And what's so interesting is you put it in context, uh, no need to prophesy, but to at least take a look at what we have. You know, I think about the fact that, you know, when did it become unpopular for Democrats to give money to poor people? Only, <laughs> only at the point when it's, for example, a school voucher, even though the largest voucher program in the country is Section 8 housing. And on the flip side, Republicans want to give families more choice, but they often have to say, well, what about parental accountability as well in the process? So thank mm. you for your, your point. I think there, can I just add one point to that? Oh, Absolutely. So one point that I would add is just a clarification. Democrats have never had a problem giving money to poor people as long as it went through middle class people to get to them first. And uh-huh. when you start talking about school choice, you're taking the middleman out in some cases. And that's where your big boo boo is um, like, yes, they have always wanted to give money to the poor as long as it went through the nonprofit industrial complex or the labor complex, one or the other. They have never been for just giving poor people money to have agency to decide for themselves what they do in their lives. 
do you do you think this gets us uh, even closer to a point where folks who would have otherwise voted for a Democratic candidate, uh, but but are the folks who are demanding <clears throat> school choice are going to be able to are going to just be inclined to vote the other way this time on this single issue? I think we do have a lot of single issue voters out there that are, there's some really difficult choices to make if you if you're traditionally voting Democrat. Uh, but this is important to you. When we saw it in Florida um, with the gubernatorial election, you could probably see it in other places. What's your what's your take on where choice voters will turn, given that the Democratic Party is so hostile? I mean, I have already started taking heat from people for saying the fact that I won't join, I won't vote for an anti-choice candidate in this race. Um, we have been left behind too many times. We have been treated as if the diminishing of the black mind in American classrooms, as if that's a side issue to a bunch of other issues, is a ridiculous concept. So if we are going to come to a point where they are going to so throw us underneath the bus and expect us to still be loyal and just vote for them, that's not going to work for everybody. And I'm actually one of those people in the not going to work for a camp. Um, so, I, you know, they are quickly seeing the foreclosure on my vote as they swing further and further towards candidates that are absolutely hostile to anything that gives black kids a pathway to better learning opportunities. Yeah. And you're, you're clearly not alone from where I said, having grown up in the Midwest myself. Chris, I've got a follow-up question for you. One thing that I've wondered is how can the people on the school choice side or the parental choice side link with people in the criminal justice space. And I say that because a number of the adults who I speak to when I visit prisons, a number of them either can't read above the eighth grade level, did not finish high school, have you know levels of, of challenge with literacy and other things. And I tell my reformers, it's not as if a 23-year-old all of a sudden could not read once they arrived mm -hmm. in prison. Mm -hmm. That happened mm -hmm. a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And so... I know the two worlds are often separate, but given the fact that uh, criminal justice reform for a host of reasons that has a lot of bipartisan support in ways that school choice used to have, is there a way we can talk about getting these two groups together or for maybe the school choice community to take some lessons from the criminal justice community? I think it's such the right question. It's the right thing to do. I think the first group that has people see that as one issue and not two wins um, the person who ends up going through 12 years of schooling, maybe eight years, maybe 10 years, but often 12 years and still ends up in prison um, is not, number one, that's not an anomaly. But number two, that's not two different stories. That's one story. That's that one guy's story. And, you know, we talk about school to prison pipeline in terms of discipline reform. And mm -hmm. you look at the fact that only like 16 percent of kids in many cities are, are even getting suspended or entering the discipline. So that leaves a whole lot of other kids that are still failing and making it into the prison systems. And when you look at a prison system, you know, full of people, it's, you would know better than I, but I think it's like 70 something percent illiteracy um, uh, um, or reading problems in that population. Um, someone needs to draw the, the dots, connect the dots for folks. And I think that's where the public has a blind spot. They do see it as two different things. They, they think welfare and prison are two different outcomes that aren't related, but schools really are, I think, a great feeder to that. And people don't really make the, connect the dots between um, the worlds. I can tell you here in Minnesota, I've tried to get the workforce development agencies and the human and health and human services agencies and the, de the Department of Ed here to sit at one table 
and think through solutions for the long term for all of those groups. And it's really hard to do. It is really hard to get those folks as seeing themselves not in silos, but in in a joint way. Um, I think you're positioned really well to make that happen, being someone who sees all the different angles on this thing. Any closing thoughts do you want to offer us before we head out? Um, you know, I, I actually love the work that you're doing um, to help people understand more the long term, you know, uh, the, the bigger reform items that we need to have. We're not just trying to reform schools. We're not just trying to reform the way that people teach and the way that they learn. All of those things are in, important, but we are trying to reform the opportunities that people have to succeed in life. And when they don't. It's to be able to say it's never over. We never are done with options on on how to help a person learn and do better. But choice is absolutely critical to families. It's not a side issue. It's not a side hustle for, for people. It's a real kind of life maker or breaker if you are able to get what you need in your childhood or your formative years that helps you be productive in the society after school. And we know that there are entire populations every year that are graduating without that, um, without the ability to do something productive in the economy. It's a great sin of our, our, of our country, and I hope that we all like find ways to work together and see it more broadly um, than just the battle between who gets the money for educating kids. Well, Chris... I want to thank you for your commitment to this work. I want to thank you for coming on our show. Uh, you're welcome anytime you want to come on board. Uh, stay strong, stay positive, but most importantly, uh, stay courageous. Thank you. I, and, you know, keep doing all the great work that you guys are doing. We need, uh, we need all hands on deck. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Chris. And to our listeners, you if you probably already follow him on Twitter, but if you don't, it's at Citizen Stewart. Thanks so much, Chris. And we're gonna we're gonna have you on again real soon, I think. Thank you. I appreciate it. And now to the commentary of the week. I found an article in the Wall Street Journal titled, Should All Children Learn to Code by the End of High School? Very fascinating. What the article identified is that nearly 20 states have already passed legislation requiring public schools to make computer science classes accessible to high school students, according to code.org, which is a nonprofit founded by tech investors to make sure that coding and computer skills are available to as many students as possible, particularly given the role that it will play Uh, in the 21st century, or I should say as we continue to move forward through the 21st century. Obviously, not all of our schools uh, offer coding in part because, A, they may lack the uh, personnel to uh, implement it, be it a teacher or an administrator, or there could be financial challenges. And this is why some tech uh, investors, this is why nonprofits and for-profits are working with schools, after-school programs, to see what we can do to help. Now, I'm personally interested in coding in one for one reason. Uh, I have a, uh, three daughters, my wife and I, and we actually put our youngest daughter in coding at age four. And the reason we did not do it earlier is because they would not accept her at age three. Uh, we were living in Richmond, Virginia at the time. We enrolled her in a coding program at her school. And it was actually taught by uh, two people who had a PhD from Virginia Tech. And they knew a lot about coding. And I can tell you within a matter of a year, she would come home, uh, started you know, not only writing 
some code, but also working us through the process that led to us putting our middle daughter into coding as well. We know from a gender perspective that for a host of reasons, a lot of girls are not uh, encouraged or sometimes discouraged to be involved in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And I wanted to move away from that by saying, you know, saying that STEM is also for them, being my girls as well. And when we think about STEM, and the article talks about this, we think that coding and computer science is covered under the T of technology, when really that's not always the case. So I do think that we should have students uh, learn code by the end of high school. It may mean that the coding class isn't going to take place inside a public or a private school uh, during the daytime. I'm a big proponent of after-school programs, particularly the hours between six to three, uh, six to, um, sorry, I'm a big proponent of after-school programs, particularly the role they provide in providing students with options between 3 and 6 p.m. And here's where nonprofit organizations, for-profit organizations, faith-based organizations can get involved in offering coding classes, coding lectures, or coding seminars to students in our area. And that is what I think about coding. Yeah, I have to say with you, I, I couldn't agree with you more on this. In fact, I was kind of like this article is sort of black and white. Right. And I was kind of surprised that there would be an argument against coding. We, too, are parents who use the after school hours to put our daughter in coding class, although not at the age of four. I was I guess I was behind the curve. Gerard. <laughs> but um, but it's it's um, it seems like I feel as though in reading this, that those of us who maybe want to rail against this, this the need to have this available in some way in schools really might just not understand tech. I know I don't. I don't know how you feel, but someday I need somebody to tell me how my thermostat works. And that's, you know, the fancy <laughs> one that, that talks to me because I am constantly confused. But thank you. That is a really fascinating article. And now I'm up, my friend, with the tweet of the week. Always, always provocative. Um, Rick Hess, Fred Hess, Frederick M. Hess, we know him as. Um, tweet is, a look at media coverage helps illuminate the Dems' Obama to Sanders shift on charter schools. Okay, so this is pretty interesting. This links to an article in The Hill. And just really, really quickly, um, gone through, um, like, looking at how how is it that we went from, like, this we're all sort of, and I should I should say that this is Rick Hess and Matthew Rice in The Hill. So it, it's not just Rick Hess. He's the tweeter. But how do we get from this place where yeah, charters charters were pretty okay, and we could all get on board to sort of walking it back a little bit if you're a member of the Democratic Party and like, well, okay, I probably gave some some money because I thought they're a really good idea, but I don't want to tell you. Then finally to the absolutely not, we hate them all. And as our guest just said, sort of the party of the American Federation of Teachers, right? Like we, we must not talk about charter schools serving kids at all in any good way when we're on a debate stage. And this article is great because it sort of, it really examines uh, news coverage um, over the years and three findings that I'll give you really briefly. Um, first, that the attention to charter schooling in the Democratic primary has been exponentially higher this election than it was, for example, in the run-up to 2012 or 2016. So there's a lot of negative coverage, of course, about charter schools, mostly. Second, it's clear that both the Democratic candidates have become much more critical of charters over time and that reporters 
have been more inclined to regard stances on charter schooling as more potentially controversial, right? So why is it that this is the education issue of the day? Like, right, like we don't have other stuff to talk about. Like, let's leave poor charter schools alone and the good that they do. And third, through the second half of last year, the Democratic field did not rely on a single shared rationale for its concerns about charter schooling. And I think that, right, we saw... I mean, poor Senator Booker, I I wish that he were still running, right? Because he walked it back at first and then he came out swinging like, no, actually, charters did do really good things for my city. And and we, you know, and and we need to admit that. Um, But now it's like all of the Democratic candidates are just relying on different talking points for why charters are terrible. And I have to say that this this is a really interesting read and I think walks us through the very short but now like tense history of how did we get to this point where even those in the federal government who are supposed to be sympathetic to charters um, have made what many perceive to be a hostile move. So thank you for the tweet, Hess, and um, I recommend the article to everyone. And that does it. Listeners, you have made it through another edition of The Learning Curve. We hope you enjoyed this one. You got a great one up next week, too. Next show guest is Kevin Chavis, the president of Academics, Policy, and Schools at K-12, Inc. So I think we're going to have a lot to talk to him about, even just on this last piece of commentary. Gerard, I hope that you have a great week. I hope you do the same. Fantastic. Talk to you soon. (laughs) 